Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. Today on The Human Reboot, we have the very brilliant Jenny Gordon from Genuine Consulting. Jenny is a Myers-Briggs practitioner and people developer, specializing in leadership, team effectiveness, communication and self-awareness. And she helps people to rediscover, reconnect and reclaim their brilliance. Jenny, please, would you tell us a little bit about your mission? Hello, Emma. I'm delighted to be here. I am on a mission to rid the world of that horrible, soul-shriveling disease, comparisonitis, one conversation at a time. Oh, brilliant. And um, why is that disease so terrible? It's that an itis, as opposed to an ology, an itis is an inflammation caused by a harmful external source. And the external source in this case is comparing ourselves with other people. And the reason it's so damaging is because it makes us feel less than. It is a component of that well-known imposter syndrome. It makes us feel not good enough. It just sets up this horrible shriveling and burying of our brilliance. And it gets worse, I think, with every generation. Yes, affecting our mental health, well-being and overall confidence, usually, I would say. Absolutely. Uh, And our resilience, our ability to kind of, you know, pick ourselves up and reboot. So now you've just led me beautifully into the reboot. Would you mind sharing your reboot with us, please? Absolutely. I'd be delighted. I'm going to tell it like a story. So I'm going to say, you know, sit back. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. I want you to imagine a rugged Scottish coastline, a tiny fishing village high on a cliff. There's a pretty cottage and inside the cottage sitting room with beautiful windows that make the most of the fabulous views, a woman sat on the floor weeping. That woman was me. I was about to lose my home, about to have no job and 23 years of marriage lying beside me in tiny, broken, jagged pieces. This wasn't the life I'd imagined and certainly not where I expected to find myself. I was lost and any brilliance I may have had was buried very, very deep inside. I was a successful health professional. I worked as a clinical paediatric nurse specialist running my own clinic. I'd recently been awarded a prestigious research fellowship by the Scottish government that was allowing me to undertake my PhD. I had three fabulous teenage sons, a husband, a wide circle of friends, an active social life, and I lived in a beautiful part of the world. It felt like I had it all. So what do you do when your world, the life as you know it, falls to pieces? Well, what I did 
was to carry on pretending that everything was still okay. I had to keep going for my children and I had to keep going for myself. I went to see my supervisor at the university to ask if I could suspend my studies while I sorted myself out. And she said no, saying that I needed a reason to get up in the morning, to give myself something to focus on. She said, you won't thank me now, but you will later. Focus on those simple tasks that you need to do, the ones that you don't really have to think about because they will provide you with a framework and a structure to hang on to in the darkest of times. She was so right. I absolutely didn't thank her then. I thought she had just added even more weight to my very heavy burden. But over time, I realised that actually she'd really helped me on concentrating on the things that I could do. The other person who was really helpful was my fabulous solicitor. And he gave me a piece of free advice, actually the best piece of free advice ever. He said that I wouldn't be able to protect my sons from the situation. And my immediate response was, well, yes, I can. Of course I can. That's my job. I am their mother. Well, actually, he was also right. (laughs) It isn't possible to protect our children from a situation that they are part of. And so we made a pact to get through it together. We agreed that although this was something that we hadn't planned or had any experience of, we'd work through it together. And that the most important thing was talking to each other, having a place, having a safe space where we could say how we were feeling. And most importantly, to know that we would get through it together, whatever happened. I applied for and I got a new job down south and I started again. It wasn't an easy road back to brilliance because I really didn't know who I was or how to ask for help or what I really wanted. But gradually, over time, I invested in a coach. I invested in some learning. That's when I first started doing Myers-Briggs. And I remember waking up one morning in my tiny little Oxford flat And I I was experiencing this really unfamiliar feeling and I kind of lay there a bit and, you know, sat with it. And I realised that what I was feeling was actually happiness. To say that it was, I was surprised about that was a real understatement. Um, And guess what? The next day it happened again and it came back on a regular basis. And that's when I realised that Even the darkest, most horrible times are transient. We can get out the other side, even when it feels like somebody keeps moving the end of the tunnel. I had that conversation with my dad a few times, but I did get out of the tunnel um, and back into the daylight. Oh, and so you're still settled in Oxfordshire, aren't you now? I am, yes. Um, I don't live in my tiny flat anymore. That was a rented flat. And I I eventually bought um, a little house just outside Oxford uh, and created a new life. Fabulous. So you mentioned in your reboot that that was your kind of first experience of when you first experienced Myers-Briggs. Would you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I expect in kind of the healthcare field, you probably hadn't really experienced many of those personality types kind of assessments before no absolutely not (laughs) none at all and my first introduction to Myers-Briggs was 
as so often happens, was like a team building kind of afternoon. So it was a kind of how can we keep them, how can we keep them occupied and give them something a bit different to do after we'd ploughed through policies and protocols and all of that kind of normal stuff. And so it was an opportunity to to just have a play really and I was just fascinated by a how accurate it was and b the potential power of it so what impact has that had on you and how has it shaped what you've gone on to do I went on to do my Myers-Briggs training as a practitioner I also started doing coaching and what it I suppose the impact it had was this deep understanding of how how different we all are and that we it's very easy to assume that everybody's the same as us we all have a view of the world and we start with our own lens if you like so we're standing on our side of the street and that's how we see the world and there's there's a sort of unwritten assumption that most of us have is that everybody else sees the world in the same way that we do partly because that would make it really easy And secondly, I realised that things that irritated me in other people and probably how I irritated other people was largely because they are at the they have different preferences to me and that an understanding of those preferences actually takes away a lot of the irritation because you can go, oh, they just see the world differently to me. They start from a different perspective. And that makes it so much easier to have conversations, to prepare conversations, to to work together, to play together. It just makes life so much easier when you understand where other people come from. So with... Myers-Briggs and personality profiling, is that what we call it? Would you say it's only useful in a work environment? No, absolutely not. Can I give you an example, another story? You know me, I love a story. Um, So I was asked to coach a senior executive in an organisation that I was working with and she had come to the session and she had assumed that we would talk about a work scenario. And I said, well, what I like to do as a coach is always start with you. I start with with you and your personality. And so we went through, we did her Myers-Briggs profile. And although we were focused primarily on the things that she wanted to achieve at work, she realized that she, she was getting in her own way at home as well. And the things, the traits that were causing her problems at work were exactly the same traits that were causing her problems at home and she has been able over the last couple of years to completely transform and these are her words not mine completely transform her relationship with her teenage children with her partner and her and her work so actually what it did was to completely change the way that she reacted to other people because she understood she understood herself but she also had a better understanding of where they may be coming from it's all very interesting isn't it it's fascinating (laughs) (laughs) so with regards to brilliance so how do you use profiling to help people to get back to brilliance I think um, an understanding, the first thing is an understanding of themselves. Quite often when we 
uh, are naturally good at something. We all have things that we're naturally good at. When we are naturally good at things, we we firstly take them for granted, and secondly, because they're e- because they come easily to us, we don't see them as special. We don't see them as brilliance. And there's a tendency to also think that if I can do it, everybody else can. And that's absolutely not the case. So I was working with somebody just recently who had assumed that her ability to be really detailed and incredibly organized and planful was no big deal. It didn't make her special in the least. And actually, when she talked about it with her colleagues, they were going, it's the thing that we love about you. One of the many things we love about you, because actually we're not naturally good at that. So you have a particular talent that we really love. And she hadn't appreciated at all. So using using personality as a starting point to help people understand where their brilliance comes from is the first step. I think also quite often as a culture, particularly in the UK, but it's not the only culture that does this, we're not encouraged, are we, to blow our own trumpets. There's a lot of sayings that certainly I grew up with, things like, oh, pride comes before a fall and, you know, getting too big for your boots and all of those kind of things that are designed to stop people from sparkling and to say, you know, I'm really good at this. This is a talent that I have and I want to share it and I want to make the most of it. It doesn't make me better than anybody else but it certainly is a talent that I have that maybe not everybody else has so I think helping people define what brilliance is for them is really important and it means that people can be uniquely brilliant so I talk a lot about getting your jewels out in my programs and if you think about there are lots of different precious stones. They're different shapes, they're different sizes, they sparkle differently. Pearls have a very different luster to a diamond. doesn't make them better or worse, it just makes them different, but they are of equal value in terms of their specialness, if that's a word. And so it's helping people to understand what their unique gift is to the world. And of course, that brings us back beautifully to those conversations about why comparisonitis is such a a soul shriveling disease, because it, it basically buries people's brilliance, comparisonitis. So do you think that that's one of the main causes of things that cloud our brilliance? Yes, I do. I think we're often so busy comparing ourselves with other people and the pictures that people post on social media aren't always as honest as they might be or maybe that's the mask that people are wearing to show to the world or the wall that they're hiding behind. So I think that often we are buried or our judgment of ourselves is clouded by comparing ourselves with other people. Are there any other kind of reasons, do you think, that people's brilliance might become tarnished, would you say? Well, there's a few. The first one, I think, is about trying to have it all, do it all at the same time. I liken it to having, you know, life is like a a banquet, isn't it? And I think that all you can eat buffet where you the temptation is to put everything on your plate at the same time rather than thinking, actually, I can go back as many times as I like so I can have a little bit on my plate 
um, and then go back and then have a bit more and go back rather than thinking I have to pile it all on at the same time in a great mountain. And when you look at it, you're thinking, well, A, I'm not quite sure where to start with all this. B, I don't actually enjoy it as much as I thought I would. I think I would have enjoyed it more if I had taken my time and gone back over and over again, rather than trying to squash it all onto one plate at the same time. So I think that having it all is a contributing factor. I think also the 100%, you know, you often hear people talk about, we want you to give it 120%. And my immediate response is, percent is out of 100. You cannot have more than 100. And therefore, you're setting people up to fail. And if you think about 100, that's 100 in total. Uh, If you think about our lives as 100%, 24 hours a day is 100%. So you can't give 100% because that would mean that you were on it for the whole 24 hours. You know, we, we do need, as humans, we need to rest. We need to sleep. We need to do all the other things, bodily functions. We need to play. You know, there are so many things we need to fit into that 100%. So to ask anybody to give a hundred percent of themselves a hundred percent of the time is asking for trouble isn't it really you've just talked about resting so tell me about how you switch off to switch on so that's about how you pause so that you can perform at your best in your work and home life I am an extrovert so I get my energy from other people So the way that I pause is by doing social things, whether that's hanging out in people's gardens, whether it's meeting a friend for a coffee, going for a walk with a friend, pop into the shops for a little girly outing. I like to pause with others. I'm also really mindful that bedtime is really, I love my bed. So I am mindful of bedtimes. So I do have a kind of strict policy, (laughs) a routine that I try to stick to where I disconnect from social media, I disconnect from the telly and I read or I just relax, uh, but I'm away from from others. uh, And I say, I go to bed about 10 o'clock and try to have my lights out uh, by half past. It is a little bit of a a movable feast, but I do try and stick to that. Oh, that is good. Now, instead of a policy, yeah, I talk to people um, within the Human Reboot programme all about positive sleep hygiene. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yes, positive sleep hygiene. That's what it is. A habit, I call it a kind of habit. It's a practice. It's, It's something that, you know, matters to me. I'm aware that I think particularly a lot of people in lockdown and I was one of them, you know, you'd start to watch something on the television and then because there was nothing else to do, you'd watch another episode. And before you knew it, it was midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And um, I am mindful that a a routine helps me keep focused and helps me keep healthy. So although it's it's a slightly wobbly routine, it does help. Yeah, that's great. And actually, you've got such a good point about that, because I think there's so many people that have done quite a lot of binge watching through the pandemic. I know I caught myself a couple of times. I was like, oh, I'll just watch another episode. I'll just watch another episode. (laughs) 
yes. And then my husband would be like, I'm sp- we're supposed to be watching this together. He's like, yeah. And no, I'm sorry, but you had to get up early in the morning and I didn't. <laughs> well, not as early as you, not five or six o'clock. So have you got any personal tips that help you to live life to the full? So we call it in the human reboot, your personal flourishing formula for life. Well, funnily enough, I've got five, but they're very quick ones. So the first one is focus on what you can do. The second one is we always have a choice, even when it feels like you don't. (laughs) The third one is you are not alone. There is no shame in asking for help. The fourth one is I practice replacing judgment with curiosity. And lastly, brilliance needs polishing. So um, get your jewels out regularly. Don't keep those diamonds in a cupboard waiting for best, waiting for a special occasion, because although they sparkle in the dark, nobody gets to see them. So I practice getting my jewels out regularly and letting people see the brilliance. Oh, that's lovely. So of those five, oh, there's a few that I've heard you say before, because obviously we (laughs) know each other quite well. So replacing judgment with curiosity. Can you give us a bit of an example of what you mean by that? I can. So, you know, when you're looking at somebody, I'll give you a give you a real life example. So I was walking and I passed a lady who was driving in a car. She had child seats in the back and obviously was a a mum of young children. And she was driving quite fast and she was smoking. And my judgment with my judgment hat on, I would have said, huh. She's got children in the car and she's smoking. Doesn't she know that smoking damages, you know, children's health and her own health? Curiosity is, I wonder how her day's going. She might, you know, the children weren't in the car. She did have the window open. And actually, maybe she is having a really, really tough day. And maybe she's driving fast with a cigarette in her hand. Maybe she's going to get help. Maybe she's going for support. I have no idea what's going on in her life, but maybe she's doing the best that she can right now. And it's not, I don't know um, what's going on. So rather than judging and thinking, gosh, she's a terrible mother or a terrible person, uh, what does she think she's doing? Being curious about, you know, what's going on in her life. Mm, Yeah, it's a really good point. And the point about you're not on your own, um, you know, and reach out for and ask for help. Where did that one come from? Have you, is that something that kind of you've learned in your own kit bag um, along the way? Yes, absolutely. Um, it goes back to that, you know, sitting on the floor of the, of the Scottish cottage with my life in pieces and thinking, wow, you know, this, and you do, when you're in the bottom of a deep hole, when your life, life as you know it, has fallen to pieces, um, you do feel very alone. And there were days when I just wanted to shut myself in a cupboard and not come out because it was hard uh, and it was hard putting a mask on and, you know, doing the things that I knew I had to do. And it was absolutely my the kindness of friends that helped me through 
And I think it's always hard to be vulnerable, isn't it? Because we think that people will judge us and that they will think, well, you should have done this or you should have done that or why didn't you see that coming or all of those things. But actually, 99.9% of the time, people were incredibly helpful and kind and supportive. And one of the things I realised fairly early on was that I had lost the ability to ask for what I wanted because or what I needed because I had been so busy looking after everybody else that I had lost Jenny in the process. So when somebody asked me what I wanted, I didn't know. I didn't know how to ask and I didn't know what. So that was quite a shock to realise that I had I found myself in that position and it took me a long time to learn to receive because I was very good at giving. I wasn't quite so good at receiving because I didn't know how. Mm. It's a really interesting point, Jenny, really interesting because that really resonates with me, you know, when you're a mom and you're, you know, investing in your work, you're giving back to other people. And, you know, in my previous life, you know, that's where kind of a wrong path that I took in terms of perhaps giving a little bit too much. I still love to give. That's just, you know, that's me. But I suppose it's it's knowing your boundaries around that and knowing when, you know, enough's enough and how much you can kind of take on what's realistic and Um, you know I suppose a a little bit like you say with your banquets (laughs) absolutely and I also think there's the you know it's it's uh, when you say asking for what you need sometimes and and this back to personalities again you know sometimes other different personalities will have a different way of approaching support so some people will immediately want to take your problem fix it and give it you back (laughs) some people will want to kind of listen and explore it and ask you loads of questions there there are lots of different ways aren't there of of people supporting and so one of the things that I learned that was so valuable and that I practice today is saying when I, if I'm asking for support I'll say what I'd like you to do is to just listen and um, I need somebody to listen while I talk it through out loud or rather than I want you to fix it for me. I don't need you to fix me. I just need you to listen. Or actually, I've got this really, you know, technical issues and I'd like you to fix it. (laughs) So I think what was really helpful for me was, was understanding the different kinds of support that might be available and being clear about asking, which was a huge deal for me, asking for the kind of support that was most helpful for me at that time. And I guess that fits again with 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 what you said about boundaries. It, it was about saying, this is what I need. You know, sometimes you just need a hug. You don't need somebody to fix the problem for you. You just need a hug and somebody to say, it'll be all right. Yeah. And that the part that is really interesting that you said, I had to learn to receive could you tell us a little bit more about that, Jenny? Because I think that could resonate massively with so many people when sometimes we forget to look after ourselves. So how do we learn to receive? I think it starts with first an acknowledgement that 
the giving and receiving is out of balance. And I I have a, a sign. So if you turn both of your palms upwards, then it's all about giving. But actually, one of your hands should be turned the other way. So I have a mental picture in my head of one upturned palm and one downturned. Um, and that reminds me of the balance of giving and receiving. And in practical terms, it can be as simple as accepting a compliment. How many times have we, uh, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, how many times has somebody paid you a compliment and you've kind of batted it back? You've gone, oh, this old thing at something in the cupboard or no, I don't look good or, oh, you know, oh, don't say that, or it's an old thing. So we kind of, if somebody pays as a compliment, we bat it back. And I've realized that's the first step to receiving is when somebody pays you a compliment, rather than saying, oh, no, this old thing, you say, thank you. <laughs> just thank you. Um, if it feels harder to say anything else, just say thank you. That was the first step for me. The second step, was around accepting so when people said would you, you know would you like me to have the boys for the afternoon um so that you can do something else rather than saying no no I can manage I can manage it's okay and rushing around desperately you know trying to fit everything in and staying up till midnight trying to sort things out just saying do you know that thank you that would be so helpful so when people offer help rather than feeling that you have to back to the buffet do it all be all everything you know and people will think that you are less than efficient if you say actually I could just do with a bit of help I think that is is so important and it is an intentional practice and even now occasionally when somebody says would you like me to do that for you? I'm tempted to say, no, 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 it's fine. I can manage. And I think the thing is to notice the pattern. If you notice that pattern of you going, no, 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 it's fine. I catch myself um, before I go, no, 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 it's fine. And I go, would that help me? And if it does, I say, thank you. Thank you very much. The final thing is I realize that I am much better at asking for help because I'm I'm not attached to the outcome. So I kind of say to people, is it okay for me to ask? It's it's as okay for me to ask as it is for you to say no if you can't. So I think there's a there's a clarity around I'm asking, but you are equally at liberty to say if you can't, and neither of us will be offended by that. So I think the way that the way that you clarify those conversations with your friends and probably harder to do with your family sometimes, but those kind of responses are really important. So I feel much better about asking people I know for help because I also know that they feel happy to be able to say if they can't so that we have a really clear understanding. Mm, very good. Are there any, is there anybody or any community or any books or anything that's really been uh, a real key contributor of your journey? Oh, <laughs> there's so many. Um, I'm a really avid reader. I love, I love books. And actually I have got piles of books that I have read and reread. And then I've got piles of books that I am yet to read. So I think Brené Brown is 
a real inspiration to me. I love her vulnerability and her podcasts. I just love everything about her and the way she speaks. I have spent a lot of time looking at authors who write about leadership. So people like um, you know, Simon Senek and John Maxwell. There's lots of people who work in the leadership space. And I love the writing of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who talks about cultural archetypes and she talks about women primarily, wild women and dangerous old crones. Um, and late bloomers and all of her work resonates hugely with me. She wrote a book called Women Who Run With The Wolves and she has such wisdom and such an eloquent way of writing. So if you haven't come across her, she is definitely somebody I would recommend. Oh, thank you so much, Jenny. I have absolutely loved having you today. Now, if anyone would like to learn more about you or want to connect with you and get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can connect with me on Instagram. They can connect with me on LinkedIn. Genuine Consulting has a Facebook page. And then there is my website, which is genuine with a j genuineconsulting.com and we'll put that spelling in the show notes as well so thank you jenny for being as brilliant as ever i've loved it thank you for having me emma as ever i love our conversations and i hope this is the first of many so thank you very much for having me thank you for listening to the human reboot podcast i'm emma last And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list or connect with me on social so that 